Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. Humanity is messy. Each of us starts with ourselves, and it's horribly messy. And then you multiply that times millions, and that's an incredible, lovely mess. So says Joy Harjo, the 23rd United States Poet Laureate and the first Native American to hold that post. She is the author of nine books of poetry, several plays and children's books, and two memoirs, and is an internationally renowned performer and writer of the Muscogee Nation, with an innumerable number of prizes and fellowships at her back. Today, we sit down to discuss her second memoir, Poet Warrior, which just came out. It is beautiful. Not only is it the story of her life, but it's a vehicle for deep wisdom about language, metaphor, and ritual. We, as individuals, as communities, as nations, and as humankind, exist in a collective story field, Harjo tells us. Everyone's story must have a place, a thread within this larger tapestry, and our story field must constantly shift to include even the most difficult stories, the ones we want to forget and repress. But, as she remarks, the hard stories provide the building blocks for our house of knowledge. We cannot evolve without them. To move forward, we must find ourselves in the messy story of humanity, assume our place as part of the earth in this time and in these challenges. For Harjo, it is when we turn to song, poetry, and the arts that we are able to reroute ourselves in the voice of inner truth, a knowing that has access to stories past, present, and future. And it is this wisdom of eternal knowledge that will help guide us forward if we only stop to listen. Let's get to our conversation. It is such an honor. I've wanted to interview you forever. So I am very honored and grateful that you took time. And I know that this book will be resonant for so many people. So Thank you. And thanks for helping me define, I guess, what this podcast is, which is conversations with people like you, which does lead me to my first question. So I grew up in Montana in the American West and certainly reservation adjacent and reverence of Native American culture. Also, obviously, I was swimming and sort of stereotypes about Native American culture as well. And now we seem to be at a point where it's this like, do you ever get frustrated that we've sort of broken? It's sort of like we're breaking toys and then bringing them back and sort of le- leaning on Native American culture as like 
can you fix this? Can you fix the planet? Can you teach us about reciprocity and balance? Can you reconnect us to the earth? Like, does that frustrate you? Well, the whole story, (laughs) the whole story, the whole American story for all of us, I think gets a little exhausting. But especially if you think about indigenous cultures and peoples being the root and and how so much of it has been repressed because Mm -hmm. it doesn't make for a, a beautiful, tidy American story. And yet we're here, we're over 570 something nations, vibrant cultures. Yes, we've lost a lot, but we have also, you know, we, we like any, any living culture, any living culture has to have a flow in and out, mm-hmm. you know, otherwise like a lake, it gets stagnant, you know, there can be stagnation and that holds for cultures too, whether it's yeah. a so-called American culture. And what is that anyway? Exactly. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's a stream. There are many cultural streams that make American culture. But yes, it does get frustrating because still, and this has happened to me when I've performed too, when I will perform and talk about this, that, and the other, and sing and play saxophone and all, showing that, talking about how blues and jazz or, you know, native music, Southeastern native music is part of that. And then I will get a question about teepees or or, or some, I will get a, a question that tells me that, Nobody heard a thing I said Hmm. as these images and broken tropes are still central. It's like I was talking with somebody the other day who was uh, teaching at some institution and they were so frustrated. They had somebody come up to them who said, I thought you, you were all dead. Uh, A Harvard, a Harvard graduate. Oh, God. No, I know. It didn't surprise me. There's a group called Illuminative that's actually been funded and has gone out and gotten actual research and marketing research numbers about attitudes and ideas of indigenous peoples in this country. And there are there were something like 30% of those interviewed said the same thing. Mm-hmm. Or they, you know, they have these misconceptions or you know, we don't exist unless to them, unless we exist within a particular kind of framework. Yeah. No. And there's such a a desire, I think, out of, you know, obviously rampant guilt, intergenerational trauma on all sides, both, you know, being oppressed and also being an oppressor. And this idea of what what's rightful, you know, what belongs to anyone, which in an, as an idea is also kind of insane, like the earth in, belongs to all of us and none of us. And so then you also understand sort of this, like th- this instinctive desire to feel better, right? Because people don't know how to metabolize or process our history. And so it's so much easier to just put it away and pretend like it's not there or have this desire to sort of want to see some sort of full circle solution where it's like, oh, and now we'll be led back into the right way of being that just doesn't allow really for anyone's humanity or the like, it just doesn't let people live, right? Humanity is messy. Each of us starts with ourselves. and It's horribly messy. And then you multiply that times millions. And that's an incredible, lovely mess. 
I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetlitten oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. I love in the book where you talk about, too, your your sense of belonging. I think it's it's talking about your Aunt Lois, who was a painter, and you write about how everyone sort of needs to feel this sense of place and kinship and how we're lot you write without it we are lost children wandering the earth our whole lives without a sense of belonging and then you talk about how even countries can be lost with no roots in the earth and we it feels that way right it feels that way acutely how do you imagine that we start to reroute or repair or reconnect or find ourselves within this messy story of humanity? Well, in a way, we have to kind of take the, you know, I'm a writer, I write all kinds of things. And so if a story is not working right, you know, what do you do? (laughs) You know, you take it apart. And you say, this is, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of a project too. I'm doing that twice to my, (laughs) this doesn't work. (laughs) You know, this doesn't work. We take this part out, you know, how do we revise this? Yeah, this is part, you know, this is part of the story. But a lot of it has to do with its intent. I mean, you come to, you can go to a movie and it just doesn't work. Why? It's because the intent or the so-called mission is not, it can only be, it could be two words, you know, or three words. 
but you know, it could be love hurts, you know, or something, but it has to be there. And we know when we go to read a novel or go to a play or movie, when it's not there, we come away with no way to anchor, no way to anchor the, the intent. There's no intent anchor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so in this country, what's happened, the anchor of course is land. I mean, you think about why people came over here in the beginning and they wanted a place. Wanted a place to all be nice, you know. <laughs> they wanted a place to to raise family. You know, most people, you know, most people come over. You know, why would you leave your home? Right. You know, some people there there were land developers. Some of the earliest people here were land developers. They saw opportunity, just like some people are seeing going to space as an opportunity to land own and other. You know, you know that's <laughs> some of this. <laughs> you know, some of this spatial stuff, but. Uh. You know, they see an opportunity for for money, but most people in the you know they came over here for you know they wanted to feed their kids and yeah. and and to and to be part of a story that included them. And then here we are. We had huge you know different nations over five hundred seventy. There were more than different languages. The difference between going to you know, Italy or Northern Italy and Southern Italy or other, you know, differences, you know, cultural and so on. It was a very, it's a very rich, cultural, exciting mix. When I went to India, India reminded me a lot of what this country would have been like had uh, there, had there not been a, a pre, uh, you know, genocidal policies and massacres to try to destroy, mm-hmm. destroy the people who were there and then plant a culture, a culture, I guess, essentially at first puritanical culture to plant that culture on top of, on top of it and attempt to make ruins out of the peoples and cultures who were there. Well, it didn't go so well because one, we're still here. Mm-hmm. There's evidence. We have all of these grave sites with native children buried because sent away, forced away from their families, even little children, babies, little kids you know, for re-education. But one of the first things we'd have to get rid of is that that a kind of caste system in which there's a hierarchy that was put into place when that sort of redistricting, it was not even redistricting, it's a supplanting of one group of people over another. That's what needs to go. And I think it is because it serves no one, even those who, who like to think that they're in power. It's harmful. Yeah. No, it's awful. It's so interesting too, like the boarding schools that you mentioned, this this effort to break the break the backs of tribes and, you know, this quote unquote civilizing force of whiteness and this to whatever effect or end, right? And so we're sort of also at this place where we're all global citizens and we recognize that in order to endure our time on this planet to survive in some ways we need a bridge building that we have never seen before right and then similarly it's this drive of individuality and sort of learning how to understand you know the Kimberly Crenshaw idea of intersectionality and that we are all completely unique with these this Venn diagram of different identities that collide in our bodies. And so how do you, and we each have our own story and our own 
purpose, our own gifts to express. And so it's sort of an, uh, no, there's this need for both, right? Like, how do we belong to, to a whole? And then how do we also find our place so that we're not just one? And it's a really interesting moment of, like you mentioned Italy, right? So we only think of it, we don't really distinguish between Italians, right? They're Italians. Or if they're here, they're white. But how do you imagine that we start to, and maybe it's through story. Maybe it's this sort of continuing to sort of bellow air into the stories of different people so that we we remember that we're different and yet all here together. I loved when you're talking about the when you speak to the old ones, your ancestors, and they remind you that you were born of a generation, this is a quote, you were born of a generation that promised to help remember. Each generation makes a person. You came in together to make change. So maybe you can put that all together in a question, but how do we hold both lines? And I had a really good answer going there. <laughs> then I, I kind of lost it. But yeah, I mean, we are in this collective story field and it's always, and we're also in a world, all of us together in a world of duality and polarity, mm-hmm. but it's everyone's story has to have a place. Even, I think one of the most surprising things that happened to me in in writing Poet Warrior, one of the moments I get surprised, I wouldn't write unless I get su- was, was surprised or found things that I didn't know. I mean, why do we do this? I mean, why do you do what you do? <laughs> Why do I do what I do? It's because we're traveling along in our story and we each have our individual stories and then we're part of this larger story. And it's like you travel along to find moments that illuminate. And sometimes they're really small moments and sometimes they're immense, but we all kind of search for those. Like we search for sunrise, the light when the sun comes over the horizon. And one of the moments when I was writing Poet Warrior that totally, that surprised me was when my, the, the evil stepfather, I mean, he wasn't totally evil, but he had his, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't helpful except for driving me inside to, to develop my inner life. And so he was helpful there. But I remember after he had passed, I didn't want to go to his funeral. I told my mother, my, but my mother asked me to. And so I did to be there with her. And I was gently held back when they asked, you know, does anybody have anything to say? And nobody, you know, and I started to stand up. But afterwards, I was sitting out with my stepsister, his daughter, who was close to my mother's age, and she was always there for me. And we were sitting out there and telling, she was telling me stories. We were trying to understand him to let him go. Hmm. And I was writing the, a lot, writing this, and then the line came, even the monster has a story. And then I write that, and I think, this happens a lot, right? I think, well, cool, thank you. You know, who am I, you know, thinking that inspiration, that line, those, you know, where art comes from, you know, that place art comes from, and, and all of those, you know, and where does it come from? It comes from, too, part of this web, this story web we're all in. Yeah. No, I love I loved that. I was just looking back at that phrase this morning. Even monsters have a story. And then you talked too about I think it was when Tiffany, who is your cousin or second cousin, uh-huh. Donna Joe, the barrel racer's daughter. Right. I always wanted to be a barrel racer. But you're talking. Yeah, <laughs> you're she- right. You were from Montana. <laughs> yeah. uh, barrel racing queen. So you talked about 
Tiffany is in jail and you tell her, you ask her to write her story, right? And to send it to you and she can seal it so that you can't read it. Or I guess she allows you to read you some to read, of it. You want me to read that section here? Yes, that would be amazing. When Tiffany was in prison, we wrote back and forth. She wrote that she was tired of carrying the burden of the past. I had material sent to her to write her story as a method of getting at the pain that was haunting her. I would be a witness, I told her, write without censoring. If there were any stories that she didn't want me to read, to write it anyway and staple the pages together, I would not read them. This was about bringing everything to the surface so that it could be let go and have no more power over her. From prison, my cousin sent me packets of pages and pages of stories. Many of the stories occurred in the first 14 years of her life when she was a child in Okima. There was page after page of handwritten emotional prose detailing sexual abuse and other violence as she grew older, documenting a lost trail through failed relationships. It was quite a catalog of abuse and addictive behavior. We are all here to serve each other. At some point, we have to understand that we do not need to carry a story that is unbearable. We can observe the story, which is mental, feel the story, which is physical, let the story go, which is emotional, then forgive the story, which is spiritual, after which we use the materials of it to build a house of knowledge. So that goes back to the question earlier about the story of America or the story we're all in together. It's like, no, you don't, as, as some people would like to just throw out everything that is not, you know, glorifying a certain color track of history in this country. It's like, no, we, we need all the parts because mm-hmm. it's those things, we've, those difficult challenges we've been through that give us, that give us our building materials, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, sort of after the funeral, telling the story so that you could understand, it seems like, you know, those building materials can only be forged from sort of the parts that, not the parts that are useful, it's all useful, but we lack sort of that durability and resilience to even understand or to want to go there, right? It's hard. It's really difficult in our own lives and then in our history to process. But I, I agree with you. It's sort of the only way forward is to, to look at it because otherwise it haunts us, I would imagine. Yeah, I keep thinking about there, there's been a lot go down this last year or so. And I remember here in the middle of the pandemic, we were marching with Black Lives Matter down the street and over to right going right over and gathering right where the um, Greenwood, you know, the massacre the massacre, the big Tulsa mm-hmm. area. And I realized, you know, that really it's about people. Everybody wants to be part of the story, a valuable part of the story. And that the overall story field, this, you know, it has to shift to include, to include these difficult stories. Somebody told me the other day, they were somewhere talking from somebody from Tulsa who said, I want nothing to do with that other story. You know, I just pretend it didn't exist. And, you know, yeah, again, and that's, that's what happens. It's no, it was, it's an important part. It was difficult, but look at what came out of it. All of these events happened to gather people together. And it seems like it's shrapnel, right? Like it has, it will work itself to the surface and it will be painful, but there's sort of an inevitability of like, you can't just bury these things 
they will come out. It's funny, even thinking about Tulsa, and I don't know if you saw that show, The Night Watch, was it The Night Watchmen on HBO, The Watchmen? But it's about sort of Avengers style, Tulsa Massacre, and then all all the police are in masks. And it's such an interesting show because it came out years ago, but it was in some ways a foretelling of this strange moment in time that we all find ourselves in. And, you know, I wonder, like, when you talk to old ones or when you time travel in your mind or your dreams, as you have, I think you write since you were, it's always been how 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 it's been for you, right, as a child. And you think about this concept of time and the way that these things are revealed to us over time. Like, how do you, how do you, and, and being alive with your ancestors in this moment as they speak to you, like, how do you think about that in the context of your life? I think that what I've been, I, I think it's true for every, ultimately everybody, but we don't always stop and think about it. Or sometimes a belief system will get in the way of, you know, well, that can't be so, or it's just my imagination or whatever, but we're, we, we live in so many different kinds of time. There's linear time. We say, okay, today is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I have this appointment at such and such. And then you can measure a child growing up on the wall, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. measure time, you measure time in all kinds of ways. You know, we, my mother used to measure time from when she burned her hand in the fry later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that became, there's different time markers that we have, but they're, it can be linear. Mm-hmm. But even at the same time as sitting here speaking with you, there could be all kinds of time and, and memory. I mean, memory is timeless. It, it, things move around. And even history, we walk in and out of history all of the time, our own personal history, but in a place. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes being in a place that history needs healing, it needs rest, just like some memories are so full, they need, they need to rest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some memories need to rest, they need to be acknowledged, and then they need a place to lay down and rest for a while. Mm. So they can get up again and be useful. You know, and I think about Greenwood, I think about, you know, my, my own people being brought here, forced here by uh, a president who refused to obey, you know, congressional order because, you know, similar political times that we've been going through, that we went through the last four years. Yet, you know, we were forced here. And so that time before is still very present. The present time is, and even the future, possible futures, but maybe even the past is possible past. Because I sometimes I get the sense that we're constructing the past, even with our the way we think about it in our memory and the way people write about it and even false narratives that we're construct. We are. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that we are. Constructing it is. Past, even as we're constructing a present, we, we are all, every one of us is actively involved in constructing a present, even as we're involved in constructing what we think we're doing. We think that we're constructing a future when really it's all, it's all happening simultaneously. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, 
Becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started, so it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. It's fascinating to me in the context, too, of your experience conversing in, in dream worlds, right? There's a culture here that's very much sort of fixated on this idea of like, you're here and then you're gone. And regardless of what you might believe about afterlife, the people who we love continue to endure in our lives and we talk to them, regardless of whether we think that that's real or not. They Mm -hmm. are, you can't, there's this idea of like anything that happened before can be erased or that it's not something that we carry forward or that those relationships cease, even if the other person but I'm sure you're very much in conversation with your stepfather even or your mother. But it's a funny way that we have of sort of pretending like what's in the past is gone and done, but it's not. It's ever present. And as you sort of say, which I think is such a fascinating idea, and the way that we've told our story incorrectly or incompletely or sort of in a, as a, sometimes a fabrication, it changes our future. I also feel like life is sort of like you're you're trying to understand, right, within a larger context. And it's like how quickly can you can you get the kindling? How quickly can you sort of learn the lessons from these teachers? So you're right, even when we just stand in the presence of our teachers, we are taught. Can you read to us on page 44 where you talk about inner knowing? Okay. As I near the last doorway of my present life, I am trying to understand the restless path on which I have traveled. My failures have been my most exacting teachers. They are all linked by one central characteristic, and that is the failure to properly regard the voice of inner truth. That voice speaks softly. It is not judgmental, full of pride, or otherwise loud. 
It does not deride, shame, or otherwise attempt to derail you. When I fail to trust what my deepest knowing tells me, then I suffer. The voice of inner truth or the knowing has access to the wisdom of eternal knowledge. The perspective of that voice is timeless. Mm, I love that. And that's the inner voice that sort of kept prodding you into poetry, even though that probably seemed like the most natural thing. I love your discussion of poetry too, which I definitely want to talk about. But also strange, right? Like sort of an, an aberrant or unusual path to go and become sort of a professor of poetry and a poet. And I love, as you say, that it's such a timeless inner voice. And, and so many of us are disconnected. Like, how do you think that, how have you stayed attached? Like, how do you continue to come sort of home to that? I think it's, I mean, we all have that inner voice and we all, every one of us deals with it or not, or doesn't, you know, and I think the arts, I mean, I think about especially people who are creative or delve into creativity. It's there. You are, you musicians, you are there, you are in it. That's your playing field, so to speak, and the materials. And you go in and bring things back that everybody needs. And you don't always understand it. And to become a poet, I mean, who sets out to become a poet? It's certainly not usually somebody in a Native community. For one, people see the university as a way to make money. You need to make a living because (laughs) you got to find a way to make a living and to do something that that will be beneficial to everyone, like education or law. And but what use is poetry? Hmm. And I've come to think of it as a kind of calling. I mean, who it really you deal directly with. I mean, time is one of the one of your tools. A poem can have several kinds of time moving in it. It's what's compelling, and that's what makes you have to stop and listen. I get concerned about all the devices and, and people there's, they can be scattering. And I know because I have to watch myself, I can get off on the internet road and take all kinds of directions. Like every, it's very addicting, but it's made to be addicting. Just like processed food is <laughs> addicting. It's the same thing. Okay. What's going to get, what's going to get the most traffic? Yeah. Fat, sweetness sex, rock and roll, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's going to drive people to your site, you know, and and so on. And and poetry, it's like, wait a minute, I'll have to stop and listen. It's funny, poetry is so intimidating to me. You know, I was an English major, iambic pentameter and haikus and all the canon of white men, you know, who defined it as a concept, Shakespeare, you know, but as you write, it is, it's sort of the the common language that we all share, but it's been shuffled through devices in a way that makes it feel inaccessible or more like a puzzle that needs to be deciphered that feels inaccessible unless you have the, the right tools. And then you talk about like how you naturally made poetry on the playground and jumped rope to it, that it is this, at its root, these words strung together are sort of our most basic and essential language. And we, we've we lost access to them by feeling like they're, we're strangers to them or they're intimidating. I loved that discussion and idea. Yeah, like it's, it's built in. 
It's built in. And I think about that separation or what happened so that poetry became so far away from us when it's absolutely essential. And I have performed and read and met with people and poets, but then also communities from all over the world. And it seems like every place, and even at Indian school, poetry was essential. Everybody read or wrote or listened because there's something about how you can express yourself in language, whether it's, you know, it's oratory and ultimately all this writing has oral roots, roots of orality, but how we all, our ears get bent. Like I, you know, talked about sitting under my mother's table and my ears bent for, we, our ears are bent beautifully for metaphor. They reshape, metaphor can reshape our minds, mm. uh, shape our, our imagine, you know, tones up our imagination so that when I've spoken with, and I've heard this in Hawaiian, Hawaiian language speakers and, and people who work with Hawaiian language and way back, I used to, one of my jobs early on was working with the Navajo language organization. I used to speak Navajo fairly well, I can't now. And Muskogee and Muskogee Creek language. They all say the same thing, Those, the speakers versus how many times it's being taught now is that the language and English, also English, in that we're losing our sense of metaphor. What is the sense of metaphor? It's a sense, it's where, it, it's a lot like landing on the line where even the monster has a story where something opens because you put images or words together that make something that opens a door that hasn't been opened before. Mm. In imagination, in your memory, on your tongue, in your ears. We're losing that. I mean, you think about text language, you know, it's yeah. a lot become symbolic, even symbolic language. So yeah. That, yeah. And it's it's so I, I love that you said that too, because so much of our language now it's legalese or it's the way that scientists speak to each other. It's how doctors speak to each other. Again, other devices which are incredibly inaccessible. And then we think about sort of the science communications crisis that we find ourselves in this moment in time. And it's exactly that. It's a lack of metaphor. It's a lack of common language that allows us to understand the world in the context of our own emotional lives. And the way that we're speaking to each other, it's, that has all been taken out. You're so right. I think that that's, it feels essential to our survival that we bring that back. Yeah, I think so too, because I mean, that's what gives color. Yeah. There cannot be a healthy and profound whole without that individual, without diversity. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what gives color. And I was at, I was in some meeting recently where a young woman meant well, but she said, I've always believed in the melting pot. And I said, you know, when I was a kid, I was, I was a kid, I was about nine years old. I just, I took all of my crayons because I thought and put them in a pot. I decided <laughs> to melt them to see what would, I wanted to see what amazing color that I had never seen before was going to emerge when I mixed all of my crayons together. Obviously I hadn't studied studied color theory yet, but I put them all in and it was a big gray mess. To me that I thought, no, melting pot, that doesn't work. 
because what gives us vitality and what gives us life are the different are the differences which Audrey Ward yeah. was very good about speaking about you know is the you know mm-hmm. it's the differences which can be the challenges but they're also the ways you know those bridges between each other make spark hold new it's almost like making new synapses you know growing new synapses of understanding with these with this diversity yeah it might be one big tapestry, but it it's each individual thread that gives it its vibrancy and makes it make sense. I mean, like gives it all of its context and its texture. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights I have the opposite problem where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn, and I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about ChiliPad by SleepMe? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want a cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me thread to get your ChiliPad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. I want to talk about your mom. I want to talk about ritual too and the importance of ritual and and how that I think with metaphor is also gone. Like there are no there's no culture of initiation, there're no there's no culture of rites, sort of this way of bringing, you know, you talk about it in the context of becoming a woman and sort of how terrifying that was. You talk about it like a snake shedding its skin, but these needed needed rituals for becoming and how do we bring those back? How do we start to, I mean, I sort of think we've lost the crone. I love to talk about the crone and sort of the way that we've abandoned that stage of a woman's life when she's sort of best suited to start bringing up younger generations. But how do we start to sort of re-engage in that cycle or create those the the ritual of life so that we're not all learning these things on our own in silos, you know? Yeah, we really need those. I mean, like birth rituals. 
yeah. I mean, we often have those, like the ritual, the whole book ends with me taking, carrying my seventh generation granddaughter into my arms. And there's always that ritual of the old, you know, everyone, but especially the older people, like the older grandmothers and, and mm -hmm. even grandfathers, holding the child, looking at the child, blessing the child, you know, seeing who the child is, what they're bringing into the world. You know, that's a kind of welcoming ritual into this place. Like every mother, you know, the mothers do when that baby, you know, and the fathers. And so there's that. I've thought a lot about the ritual of passing on recently. And we just lost a, a brother-in-law to COVID. I just lost a brother-in-law. And I'm sorry. about how much that ritual, you know, so many of the rituals, the body gets, it's that body gets taken away, even at birth. I checked myself out early in the hospital because they took my daughter immediately. And mm -hmm. I walked, I got up and walked and said, I want my daughter. And then they got angry at me. And I thought, wait a minute, what happens? This is my, this is part of my ritual, so to speak. And there's been an interruption. And that same thing has happened at death where we don't get to sit with the bodies. So that yeah. husband and the family did the rituals that were supposed to be done with the body laying there in the family getting to be around we did the rituals but the body was over in the mortuary and and there's so many points of becoming but some of the most those are two of the most powerful you know when you move from here through that to you know through the door of death and you come here and another one is becoming coming of age i yeah. mean that there's so much power that's the other thing there's power around there's a lot of innate power and sacredness and even coming of age. And yet, because you're you're shifting and it is like it is like, you know, you, you your whole body changes. You become somebody. You become somebody maybe you've never known before. Well, our our children need that doorway, our children slash young people, to say, okay, here, these are the things that you need to put away because, and this is what we we're holding you to a standard and we welcome you. <laughs> you know, we welcome you into this next level of becoming just like we need those when we get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. I know I've been trying not to, you know, open my phone and look at the weather. I mean, I can look outside, but that's, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, I, I want to stay away from, I don't want my phone to be part of my morning ritual yeah. because I want that space to think, okay, to feel out and to listen and then, you know, to say thank you or ask for a blessing, go out with the sun and ask for a blessing for the day, for, you know, for this earth. And then the same with sundown. The animals all have sundown rituals. So yeah. it, ex it gives a kind of meaning. I mean, I think that's why football and sports <laughs> become so, <laughs> have such a place because they are a massive way, a way that people feel connected, one, and can participate in a kind of ritual. No, it makes so much sense. And it feels like we're missing it. And then we're not ma marking the passage of time. As you mentioned, sort of the disconnection that we have from death, not sitting with people's bodies, not dressing them, bathing them, how death has become so sanitized in our culture, so abstract, really. It's like, that's the other thing is it's like these things just become ideas. And then when we lack the language of metaphor, we lack the language of actual experiencing and touching, we're becoming completely disconnected from what's happening around us. Song and poetry bring that back. Yeah. 
they're, yeah, they're essential, yeah, they're essential, essential to, to ritual. And you can make a little, you know, even with a, a kid, you know, just being present, yeah. just being present and, and marking that time. And, and that's so crucial instead of, you know, your little kid needs attention and you're on the phone or you're watching, you know, I have to watch that. We all do because this yeah. other force is kind of, it's distracting us. Pulling us to a different reality. All right. In closing, when you talk about your mother wanting to save her and, and recognizing that she could sort of pull you down with her, the sort of the limits of your own power to interfere in her story, will you read to us on page 89 where you talk about how the word mother wants to take over this whole story? The word mother wants to take over this whole story. And there is no combination of words, sentences, or paragraphs that could carry that weight that story, and how it was born from one mother to the next, from generations, from the beginning. When I speak with a close friend, she tells me her mother is taking over her book of poetry, and the book isn't supposed to be about her, though she is part of the history. Is this the nature of mothers and mothering? Does each generation carry forth the wounding that needs to be healed from mother to mother, cooking pot to cooking pot, song to poetry and poetry to beadwork until one day in eternity, we will understand what we have created together. Mm. It is so powerful. And it's, I'm writing a book myself and my mother, my mother is taking over my book too, in a way, but it's impossible. You know, when we think about, when we think about sort of mother being matter, being sort of that that root of it, mater, we think about the planet and sort of women as vessels, like as the people who really carry forward this, carry forward life. What is it? Is it that also in this patriarchal society to sort of want something different than your own mother or to usurp her ambition or to achieve or to just separate like when we're taught to stay attached as women like that that's sort of who we are is this this vessel of nurturance and care and that when we separate from our mothers or have to let them go in some way or let ourselves go that we're it's a an act of betrayal why is it so heavy I think it's, I think you hit on it too. You really hit on it. It has to do with, you know, the, the kind of weight or the, le- the, the hierarchy in this hierarchy, we're talking about the hierarchy earlier. Women are at the bottom. They're still at the bottom of this power hierarchy that has been set into place or that, has, you know, that has, yeah, that's been, it's kind of the template of American society and many societies mm-hmm. around the world where a mother is at the bottom. And then you get into, the brown mothers are at, I I think native mothers or native women are at the very bottom in this country. But you also look at people who work with children get paid the less. Childcare paid the less. And what what is the most valuable resource? It's our children, all of our children, you know, they're all our children. And yet those, those elementary school teachers, any of the, you know, middle school, junior high paid, paid, paid much less and they should be paid as much as professors and universities because they are working with, you know, you know, and given opportunities to continue to expand their education, understanding, and yet they're valued less. And then you think about the, the environmental crisis that, we're, that we, we see every day, climate change at Israel, 
And the earth, we call the earth Iganajaga. Iganajaga in Muskogee Creek, that's the mother earth. And, and it's that same devaluation of the female, which is part of all of us. Every man comes through the door of a woman. We all come through that doorway. Mm-hmm. And, and we are so out of balance because of this devaluation and, and even, you know, the contributions and the power of women in, in the place it, it should be for a healthy, for a healthy society. And I keep thinking, I got this image of, you know, here's Igana Jaga. Well, she's not the only one. There's a whole planetary circle of female planets, you know, <laughs> female planets. I just, I had this image who are watching and standing guard. Mm-hmm. And I we agree. are, yeah, and we are all part, you know, you think about there, there is context and how do you get context? And I always remember Audrey Lord, the poet Audrey Lord telling me that what she would do, she was helping counsel me through some, you know, probably, you know, some lost love affair that somebody I don't even remember. <laughs> no, I can't that you don't have to put that in. But counseling me. And she said, what I do is I, I, I take myself, you know, I come back out of the story, I get, you know, I see the story. And instead of being so in it, then you, you pull back. And then I think about how now in this context of Earth, you pull back and you see the Earth, and that was the power of that NASA image of Earth. It, you know, out of that image came even the word environmental or this awareness or holistic and so on, because suddenly people could see, well, Earth is a living being. Mm-hmm. One, we don't, you know, we can, it's, it's beautiful. She's, she's really beautiful. She's very beautiful. She's got a sister, Venus. Yeah, Venus. She's got a brother, Mars, but she has her, she's, she has a place and we're part of her. We're not. We're, yes, we all have our individual stories, but there's that story field and we're linked. We are linked, but we're going to be lost if we don't realize that we're linked and realize, you know, realize that or maybe not realize, but assume our place as, as uh, crucial parts of you know, a healthy and beautiful and challenging life as part of Vigana Jaga, as part of this earth and this time and this, these challenges. Wow. As she writes in the book, even when we just stand in the presence of our teachers, we are taught. And I feel that way about Joy's presence, obviously, but her book, which is so beautiful. And I think it's one of those, as she says, it's just those single lines. I think that comes from being a poet where you're just like, oh, that that hits. And I loved sort of the conversation about how we don't have to, we don't have to carry a story that is unbearable. But we do need to use its materials to build a house of knowledge. I think that that's so beautiful. And I think that that's the moment that we're in right now of continuing to replay history, the reverberations of history, which will be our fate, I think, until we can actually look at it, pause, understand it, and then move forward. There's another part of the book that we didn't get a chance to talk to today where she talks about how she's obsessed with maps and directions. And she uses a medicine wheel 
And I thought this was so beautiful, so I'm going to leave it with you. East, a healer learns through wounding, illness, and death. North, a dreamer learns through deception, loss, and addiction. West, a musician learns through silence, loneliness, and endless roaming. South, a poet learns through injustice, wordlessness, and not being heard. Center, a wanderer learns through standing still. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.